I'm sure you realize what just happened to you just now. A incredible Bible-saturated prayer. It was almost too hard to keep up with. Psalm 65, Psalm 67, Psalm 103, Isaiah 45, Romans 12, Romans 14, John 13. Thank you. Thank you for saturating us with truth in your God-centered, Scripture-saturated prayer. I want to begin by saying that I don't think we understand just what a crazy outrage human pride really is. I don't think we get that. I don't get that. You see, I don't think we understand that pride is not merely being a little braggy, a little boasty, a little smug and self-righteous. No, you understand pride, listen carefully, pride is an attack on the very glory and supremacy of God himself. You understand pride is galactic mutiny. It is cosmic treason against the creator. It is to contest God's exclusive rights to have all the glory and all the admiration from the very people that he created. And if you think about it, to be arrogant is literally to be insane. That is certifiable insanity. That is a psychosis of the soul. To be proud means that we have forgotten our place in the universe. That we have forgotten that we are created. He is the creator. We are temporal. He is eternal. We are unclean. He is the holy one. If you think about it, pride arrogance, smug feelings of superiority. They're really nothing more than our own private reenactment of the Tower of Babel. And Babel, you realize, wasn't only some event that happened a long time ago, although it did happen. No, you understand, Babel is inside of us. It's, it's in our very bloodstream. And you see, God will simply not have it. There will be no competitors for his supremacy. He will not give his glory to another. Just as the Tower of Babel had to fall, so too must the towers of human pride crash to the ground, and great will be their fall. I mean, imagine for a second the Tower of Babel on a global scale. Imagine, if you will, a day of reckoning against the wicked pride of human beings. Because guess what? That's exactly what Isaiah chapter 2 is. It's a chilling account of how Yahweh will literally visit the planet in the future, not to pass out gold stars for good behavior, but to hold the human race accountable for their narcissistic pride and worship of the self. Because you understand the great enemy of God is, of course, the prince of darkness and his horde of demon lackeys, but equally hated by God, equally opposed to God, equally evil in the sight of God, is the pride and arrogance of men. You see, in Isaiah chapter 2, it's really important for us because in this chapter, Yahweh identifies that the main problem in the world, what is the deepest most catastrophic cancer of the human race is not that they lack confidence in themselves, but that they have confidence in themselves. The problem, you realize, why the world is filled with ugly pain and bloody brutality and why the wrath of God is going to come upon it is precisely because of the pride-produced idolatry of the human soul. This will not end well for the human race. Three times in this chapter, God says that he will crush and humble the pride of men. Three times in this chapter, God warns the proud to hide in the caves and holes in the ground from the splendor of his majesty. Twice in this chapter, God says that he will rise up to terrify the earth. Literally every Hebrew word for arrogance and pride is in this chapter. And the point of the chapter is clear and unmistakable. Arrogant man wants the glory for himself. 
God alone deserves the glory. Only one of them will win. That's chapter two. Because when two objects collide, you understand, there is always damage of a collateral nature. But when God arrives at the end of the earth to do business with the pride and arrogance of man, he alone will be the one doing the damage. And I know probably what you're thinking. Well, this isn't very festive. This isn't very Christmassy. I mean, I was kind of hoping for wise men from the east. I was in the mood for shepherds abiding in the field and swaddling cloths and mangers and choirs of angels. I was really hoping for something merry and bright and joy to the world. And instead, you're preaching this. This doesn't have anything to do with Christmas. Does it not? Does it really have nothing to do with Christmas? Because you remember what Mary said when she found out she was pregnant with the Messiah, do you not? She said this. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name, and His mercy is over generation and generation to those who fear Him. He has brought down the mighty with His arm. He has scattered the thoughts of the proud in their hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and He has exalted the humble. Mary said that. Christmas. The humbling of the proud, glory to God in the highest, that is the essence of what Christmas is. And any day, any day is a good day to gut check our souls for the presence of arrogance and pride. And when God is willing to devote almost an entire chapter to his anger at the arrogance of men, that's a cue from the Almighty to peer into our own souls. So where that's going to be found is Isaiah 2, verses 6 through 22, everybody's favorite Christmas text. Here we go. This morning, I want you to see from our text three inevitable outcomes. Three inevitable outcomes on the earth when Yahweh arrives to establish his reign. That's where we're going. Three inevitable outcomes on the earth when Yahweh arrives to establish his reign, inevitable outcome number one, the pride of man will soon be crushed. The pride of man will soon be crushed. Because here's the thing about chapter two. As the chapter two depicts two different events. There's an event in verses one through five. There's an event in verses six through 22. But you see, the thing about those two events is that they are not in chronological order. Both are events in the future. Both describe things that are happening in the future. But chronologically speaking, this is very important, verses 6 through 22 actually come chronologically before verses 1 through 5. Which means the global war of God in the future waged against the arrogant that we're about to see actually leads up to and culminates in the kingdom portrayed in verses 1 through 5, which we saw last week. And you remember in verse 5 that God calls the nation of Judah to repentance. You remember that? Look at verse 5. It's a call for Judah to abandon their suicidal sin and yield to the king. And look what he says. He says, Oh, house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of Yahweh. It's a call to repentance. And the reason why Judah needs to repent is because in verses 6 through 8, look at, look at what Yahweh says. The house of Jacob needs to repent because verse 6, You, God, you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. Why? Because they are filled with things from the east. They practice magic like the Philistines. And they strike deals with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses and there is no end to their chariots. Verse 8, their land is filled with alilim. They bow down to the work of their hands, which their fingers have made. Do you see? 
Judah needs to repent. The house of Jacob needs to repent and walk in the light of Yahweh because, the house, because Yahweh has rejected the house of Jacob. Not forever. Not, not permanently. Just for now. Just for a while. He has, for the time being, washed his hands of his own people. Because you remember, don't you, the covenant that God made through Moses with the people? In that covenant, God offered innumerable blessings for the people to enjoy. And yet the thing about those, those blessings is that they were conditioned upon joyful submission to the law, right? And, and not only that, but humble repentance expressed through animal sacrifice when they didn't keep the law, right? That's the deal. That's the covenant, and as long as they treasured Yahweh and didn't sleep around with other gods, they would be a kingdom of priests. They would be a light to the nations. But as soon as it was clear that the nation as a whole had rejected the covenant, that they had broken the contract, which they had done, Yahweh would freeze, as it were, the account of blessings with which he wanted to lavish them. And doing that, you understand would leave the people more vulnerable to apostasy, more idolatry, invasion, war, exile, and destruction, which is exactly what would happen 120 years from this moment when Babylon would move in and level the city of Jerusalem to the ground. And news of God's rejection, hearing this, would have been unthinkable. This would have been impossible. There's no way this is true. I mean, look at us. Our nation, we have more economic thriving and prosperity and abundance than we have had in centuries since the time of Solomon. There's no way this is true. And yet it was true. And you can see him in the text, four reasons why God had rejected the people of Judah. And every single one of those things you will notice is accompanied by the word filled. Their hearts and their land were filled with four terrible things. Verse 6, God rejected the house of Jacob. Why? Because he says, they are filled with things from the east. Stop right there. Filled with things from the east. You know what that means? That has really bad connotations in the Bible. To be from the east, you know where it comes from, don't you? It comes from even in the beginning all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve released the virus of sin into the world and they were kicked out of the garden and they were driven to live where? In the east. Cain killed Abel and he was forced to live where? In the east. And the global rebels who refused to spread throughout the earth built a tower. And where did they build that tower? In the east. You understand that expression became eventually an expression of spiritual danger and drifting and even apostasy. At the end of the day, to be from the east was the Old Testament version of saying that they were in love with the world. That they had compromised with the world, that they were romanced by the world, that they were enchanted by the world, which is exactly what they were. And, and how had they done that? How had they compromised? Verse 6 literally says they were practicing magic like the Philistines, sorcery, voodoo, witchcraft, whatever pagan religion, religious practices filled their lives. It says they were striking deals with the children of Foreigners, meaning what? Meaning not that it's wrong to do business with unbelievers, but it is wrong to relax and compromise your convictions with unbelievers, which is what they had done. Bottom line, at the end of the day, number one reason God rejected them is because they were worldly. They looked like the world. They talked like the world. They loved the world. They were enticed by the world. They were romanced by the world. And that is a really, really big problem because according to 1 John 2, 14, if you love the world, you do not love the Father. I just need to pause and I need to ask you, are you filled with things from the East? Are you enticed by the world? Are you enchanted by the world? Are you romanced by the world? Are you in love with the world? What I mean is, do you have a love affair with the world and what it has to offer? 
Do you believe somewhere deep down that, that ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction can be found in material, financial, or sexual delights? Because if that's what you really feel and believe deep down in your soul, you are in more danger than you realize because those things might actually reveal that you might not actually know the Lord. That you have been duped by the deception. That there is something out there that satisfies more than God, which isn't true at all. And yet Judah was blinded. Enchanted by the east. The second reason, however, God rejected them, verse 7. Isaiah says, their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Think about that for a moment. Filled with silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. What's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong, I ask, with having a thriving, booming economy? What's wrong with that? Nothing. Nothing at all. Unless, of course, that becomes the supreme object of your desire, even over above God himself. Unless the treasure of gold is what you treasure more than God, which Judah did, which means the reason God rejected them was not only because they were worldly, but because they were greedy. They were greedy, materialistic, and exhilarated by the potential of what money can buy, the question is, do you see this in your life? The question is, is God your gold, or is gold your God? The third reason God rejected his people, verse 7 again, is says their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. What are we talking about here? Well, we're not talking about ponies, or modes of transportation here. No, what we're talking about is power. Military might and strength and placing your trust in the power of God instead, uh, power of man, instead of the power of God for your deepest security, because you understand horses in that day were Humvees. Chariots in that day were tanks, which means finally, finally, they were a force to be reckoned with on the stage of the world. Finally, they weren't the wimpy kid in the schoolyard being picked on by the big bad bullies of the world. Finally, they had muscle and clout and strength and glory like the nations of the world, which means they were power hungry. And the funny thing about that, multiplying horses and chariots was the very thing that Deuteronomy 17 told them not to do for the very reason that they would plus their, place their trust in those things instead of God for their security, which they had done. The question is, do you see this? I'm not assuming, but I've got to ask, do you see this in your life? The hunger for power. The longing for recognition and the admiration and the praise of men. Final reason for God's rejection in verse 8, and God saves the worst for last. Look what else had tragically filled what was supposed to be the holy land. Verse 8, it says, And their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, which their fingers have made. We have heard this so much that we, we forget how shocking this is, isn't it? The land of Israel was to be the one place on the planet where worship of idols didn't happen. This was to be the most sacred and holy and God-exalting and truth-saturated piece of real estate on the planet. You cross the state line into Israel, and it's clear. This is a chosen people. This is is a holy nation. This, this is a, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. And now look at it. A defiled land cluttered with idols exactly like it was 700 years before this when God kicked the pagans out of Canaan. And now the idols and the pagans are back. Instead, this time it is God's own people that are the pagans. And what is an idol? What is an idol but an opportunity to worship the self? What is an idol 
but a form of control and playing God over your own life. What is an idol but a tool to indulge your own pleasures and lusts? What is an idol but an opportunity to worship the self? Because the, the issue behind idols, you realize, is the worship of the self. Men worship idols because in some horribly twisted way, idols are designed to make man the object of worship. Which is why Isaiah says, they bow down to the work of their own hands, which their fingers have made. In other words, that's called pride. It's called pride, and it's exactly the issue identified in verses 9 through 11. Look at the text. Your versions might render this differently. But Isaiah says, but man, but man will be humbled, and common man will be laid low, and you shall not or do not forgive them. Go into the rocks, hide yourself in the dust from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty. For the eyes of the arrogance of man will be laid low and the exaltation of men will be humbled and Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. There's three things about this text. There are three things about verses 9 through 11 that you really have to see. Number one, you notice here that God expands his focus from merely Judah to the planet as a whole. Do you see that? From here on out in the chapter, God is no longer just focused on the people of Judah, but even on the entire human race who thinks they can get away with cosmic treason against the creator, but they can't. They just can't. And you can see it by his terminology that he's not just talking about Judah. Look at verses 9 and 11. This is the whole human race. He says, man, man will be humbled. Common man will be laid low. The eyes of the arrogance of man will be humbled. The arrogance, the exaltation of man will be humbled and laid low. Do you see that? We're not just in Judah anymore. This is a global war of God waged in the future against the entire human race any person, any man who thinks they can get away with a life of self-exalting independence or a life of God ignoring pursuits for their own personal glory and advancement and exaltation are living in a dream world. That goes against the very reason that God made us, doesn't it? I mean, were we not made for the fame of his name and the praise of his majesty? And don't you see, pride is doing the exact opposite of that. And it is shocking to me, it is shocking to me how many professing Christians know intellectually that they are to live for the glory of God, and yet they live their lives fundamentally for the glory of the self. You can see it, can't you? In their priorities their passions, in their pursuits, and their perspectives, much time made, much time spent, much time given on self-promotion, self-image, self-improvement, and very little concern for the priorities of the Lord and what it reveals about them is a pride-produced idolatry that has taken their soul captive and has replaced God as the treasure of their souls. Loaded question, do you see this in your life? Second thing you need to see about verses 9 through 11, you see here that this global war of God waged against the arrogant, you must understand this has not happened yet. It has not happened yet. It is a future war that will take place when God intervenes in the planet in a way he has not done so in the past. This is going to happen, and it is what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. That's in the Bible. Those words are in the Bible. And I believe that's exactly what's being captured here in Isaiah chapter 2. Look at verse 10. This is horrifying. One of the most chilling verses that, that I have read, it's to the proud who refuse to repent. God says, fine. Fine. Go then to the rocks. Hide yourself in the dust from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty. In other words, if you will not repent, 
under the mighty hand of God, then your only option is to flee to the caves and holes in the ground and wait there until God finds you. Stay alive as long as you can until God finds you. And mark my words, he will find you. My point is that very verse right there, that is quoted in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, which describes the future judgment of God at the end of the age in the tribulation, which means this global war against the proud is still to come in the future. And it will come. Finally, number three, third thing you need to see about verses 9 through 11, do you see it? Do you see the connection? between arrogance and pride in verses 9 through 11 and all of the sins that God listed in verses 6 through 8? Do, do you see the connection? Why does he turn from talking about these sins in verses 6 through 8 to all of a sudden talking about arrogance and pride in verses 9 through 11? And the answer is clear. It's because arrogance and pride is the root beneath that leads to and produces all of those other issues. Which means if we are worldly, if we are greedy, if we are power hungry, and if there is idolatry in our lives, it is because lurking beneath the surface is the devil's curse, the poison of pride. The question is, do you see that? Do you see any of that in your life? And before you say no and assume the best about yourself, I have to remind you that pride is a secret and subtle sin that appears in many great shapes, which at first are unsuspected and undetected, right? Which means the greatest way, the greatest way to smell the presence of pride is to look what God says at the end of verse 11. Look what he says. He says, but Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. My question is, how do you feel about that? How does that strike you? That God alone will have the glory. That God alone will be exalted. That he alone will have the supremacy. How does that strike you? How does that sound in your ears? Does that sound like a good thing? Does that sound like good news? Or does that, to be totally honest, kind of sound a little bit narcissistic? Or, or is God's commitment to his own glory a threat to the glory you would like for yourself? The question is, if you're not humble, and yet you would like to be, what do we do? What do we do if we would like to be humble? And I'm going to give you some theological help for that at the end. But for now, for now, let's see inevitable outcome number two. Inevitable outcome number two. The vendetta of Yahweh will soon vanquish the arrogant. The vendetta of Yahweh will soon vanquish the arrogant because the God of the universe keeps a calendar. I don't know if you knew that or not, but he does. He's very organized. Everything is scheduled. Everything is ordained. Everything is arranged. Everything is planned. God has appointed and prearranged, let's call it predestined, every single event of his redemptive plan. And one of the events on God's calendar is the day of vengeance against the arrogant. Because you understand the goal of God for history is to humble the suicidal pride of man and exalt his glory for the gladness of his people. You know that, right? And that's exactly what we see in verses 12 through 17. And notice, notice in verse 12, the calendar of God displayed. He says, for Yahweh of hosts has a day. God has a day. Which day? Verse 11 calls it that day. Well, what day is that exactly? It is the day that God alone will be exalted. And I take that to refer ultimately to the second coming of Jesus Christ when he will return and build his kingdom and everything that is twisted and ugly and horrifying and mutilated and backwards in the world will be restored to its pristine, pre-fall, paradise-like conditions 
But you see, here's the thing. It's in verses 12 through 17, this is very important, where God describes how exactly he will get the glory and how he will do that is by bringing vengeance upon everything that he is against. Everything that tries to photobomb his glory and steal some of the praise for itself. And it's in verses 12 through 16, we see 10 opponents, 10 opponents that God will be against in that day. And listen for that key word, against. Verse 12, for Yahweh of hosts has a day against all of the arrogant and the lofty and against everyone, against everyone who has lifted up, but they will be humbled. And you see that there in verse 12, don't you? Three words for pride. That's four. Is that? No, that is three. I can't, can't, I can't count my own fingers here. Three words for pride. And they all overlap in their meaning. They all, they all say the same thing. We have the arrogant, there are the lofty, and there are the, those who are lifted up, and they are one and the same. And you notice there in the text, God is against the proud. He is opposed to the proud. And why exactly? Why exactly is pride such a massive deal in the universe? And pride is a massive deal, you understand, because God is a massive deal. He is infinite, eternal, uncaused, uncreated, unchangeable, and sovereign. He is a God of uncreated, transcendent majesty. He is a God of matchless, unrivaled supremacy, and as such, he is worthy of more interest and attention and admiration than anyone in the universe. He is worth being exhilarated about. And pride, you see, is like the Fiji water girl of the 2019 Golden Globe Awards. Do you remember this? It's a really weird thing. You can Google it later. You remember that Academy Awards, Golden Globes, ceremonies, that's, that's really just for the glory of the actors, right? They show up, they walk on the red carpet, everyone takes their pictures, and everybody worships. Well, back in 2019, there was a clever plan in place by the Fiji Water Bottle Company to steal some of that glory. You can Google this later. This is a real thing. In, in every picture of, of a celebrity, and I mean every single picture, there's this girl in a blue dress in the background holding a tray of Fiji water bottles, photobombing every single picture. It turns out what this was was a cardboard cutout strategically placed there by the company as a stunt and marketing ploy to steal glory from the ones for whom the red carpet was actually rolled out. When people found out about this, it was kitsch, it was tacky, it was tasteless. Frankly, it was pretty embarrassing, not well played, not good form. That's a ridiculous example. But it illustrates the point, doesn't it? The universe is God's theater. The red carpet is the world. God is the star of the show. We are the cardboard cutouts, and pride is to photobomb the glory that belongs to God alone. And not only is it kitsch and tacky and tasteless to be proud, it is an attack against the glory and supremacy of God himself. Do you feel this? The question is, the question is, can you see, can you see signs of pride and arrogance and self-exaltation in your life? And I don't mean that you liked how you looked in a picture one time. I don't mean that you like how you look in your favorite pair of jeans. I don't merely mean that you like what your biceps look in the mirror. Rather, I mean, can you see the symptoms of arrogance and pride in your life that although subtle to you are not so subtle in the eyes of the Lord? Are you a glory thief is what I'm asking that you want people to feel about you the way you feel about you. How can you tell? What are, what are the signs? 
What are the signs of arrogance and pride? How can you tell if that is in your life? And you see, it is exactly in verses 12 through 16 that give us the answer. Because again, we see these 10 opponents that God will be against in the day of his wrath. And get this, every single one of those things are manifestations of what pride looks like. Verse 12, we've seen already, Yahweh has a day against all of the arrogant and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up. Verse 13, In the day that Yahweh comes to be exalted, it says he will be, get this now, he will be against every lofty and exalted cedar of Lebanon and against all of the oaks of Bashan, which is weird, isn't it? Because those are trees. Those are trees. Cedars of Lebanon and oaks of Bashan are trees, famous trees in the ancient Near East. Okay, so God's got a problem with trees now. Not just any trees, but the highest and tallest trees in the world at that time. Think California redwoods. Think towering sequoias that, that tower over the other trees. What's the point? The point is Isaiah has got a thing for trees. He uses trees as an analogy for people about a dozen times in his prophecy. And here in particular, he is talking about people who feel superior to others. He's talking about people for, who, for whatever reason, when they walk into a room, they feel taller than the other trees. Could be their title, their talents, their moral impeccability, their income, their position, their achievements, their intelligence, their insight, their education, their physique, maybe even their good looks, whatever it is, they have a criteria by which they feel validated and exalted over other people. The question is, do you have that? Do you have a secret criteria that you use to feel superior to other people? Verse 14, when Yahweh arrives at the end of the age, it says he will be against all of the lofty mountains and he will be against all of the lifted up or exalted hills. And here we go again. First tree is now this. God's got a problem with mountains, apparently. The very mountains that he created, they're a threat to him. Is that what it is? No, but what that is, you understand, is a perfect picture of people who love to be respected, who love to be admired, who love to be noticed, who love to be recognized, who love to have people look up at them and be the object of people's admiration. These are people who use whatever it is they're good at to feel important or sufficient or superior to other people. They love the applause and the praise and the accolades of men. The question is, do you see any of that in your life? Because if so, there is a cure. There is a cure for arrogance and pride. It's coming soon. But notice verses 15 and 16. God alters the metaphors. He's still talking about the self-exalting pride of, of human beings. And Isaiah says, in that day, Yah will be, again, notice this, verses 15 and 16. He will be against every high tower and against every inaccessible wall and against all of the ships of Tarshish, and against all of the vessels or boats of beauty, beautiful boats, beautiful vessels. What on earth is God talking about? This is absurd. Inanimate objects, and God's got a problem with them. What's wrong? What's wrong with towers and walls and boats and vessels? This just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Unless, unless, listen carefully, towers and walls and boats and vessels are objects in which human pride finds its boasting and security. Does that make sense? Unless these are the kind of objects that arrogant men use as criteria to feel superior to other people. Unless these are the kinds of things that people trust in for their security and satisfaction instead of God alone, which is exactly what they are. Towers and walls refer to objects of safety. The ships of Tarshish and boats of beauty, whatever that is, these are, the, the, these are objects of, of prestige, of satisfaction. Think yachts and limousines. In other words, these are objects of protection and pleasure. These are objects of satisfaction and security. And so isn't it interesting to you that trusting things other than God come in a passage the context of which is about pride? 
What does that mean? It means that objects of misplaced trust, things to which we look for meaning and significance and satisfaction outside of God, has as its root pride in the soul. You see? Again, I ask you, do you have anything like that going on? Is there anything other than God that's encroaching on the sacred ground of your soul reserved for God alone? And the real question is, how would you know? How on earth would you know if there was an object of misplaced trust to which you were looking for satisfaction and significance other than God? How would you know that? And you would know by asking yourself the following questions. Listen carefully. What do you daydream about the most? What do you worry about the most? What do you fear the most? And how much energy do you devote to protecting yourself against what you fear? What are you angry about the most? What do you seethe over and get bitter about the most? In fact, you can tell what you really trust and treasure by filling in the blank of the following question. Here it is. My life would be complete and I would be finally satisfied if I only had blank. What would you say? What did you say? You see, it's our secret moments and our private contemplations, listen carefully, that most clearly reveal what Calvin called the strange and monstrous longings of our pride. And the problem with pride, verse 17, is that that's not going to go well for the unrepentant. Look at the text. It says, the arrogance of man will be humbled, and the exaltation of men will be laid low, and Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. And there it is again, like a repeated chorus to a song that we don't really want to hear anymore. Isaiah reminds us that the goal of God in history, hear this now, the goal of God in history is to crush the suicidal pride of men and exalt his glory for the gladness of his people. I want you to notice those two words in verse 17, humbled and laid low. We, see, we saw them back in verses 9 through 11. Those two words, they literally mean to bend, to stoop, to crouch, kind of like you do before a king, bowing before him in subjection. And Isaiah is clear that one day the supremacy of God will be the thing. It will be the everything. And Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. The question is, what day is that? What day on the calendar exactly is Isaiah talking about? What day is he referring to? And you know the day, don't you? I want you to keep a finger in Isaiah chapter 2. Don't lose your place. And I want you to look at Revelation 19. Here's the day. Here's the day. Revelation 19, here is that day about which Isaiah speaks that Yahweh alone will be exalted. When he rises up to terrify the earth and take back the planet that's rightfully his, here is the day, Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he will judge and wage war. And his eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a garment dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven were following after him on white horses, clothed in clean white linen. And here it is, out of his mouth is a sharp two-edged sword. Why? So that with it he should strike down the nations. 
And he will rule them with an iron rod. And he will trample the winepress of the wine of the wrath of the anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his garment and on his thigh. Which says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're not done. Skip down to the bottom. And I saw the beast, that is the Antichrist. And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to wage war with the one who sat upon the horse and with his army. And the beast and the false prophet with him were seized and they were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came out of the mouth of the one who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were literally, it says, satisfied from their flesh that day that day is the day that Yahweh alone will be exalted the day that God vanquishes the arrogant and it is in the glorious return of his son at the end of the age the king of kings and the lord of lords and let me just pause here and say this we all struggle with pride. I felt defensive over things last night and this morning. <laughs> we all struggle with pride in various ways, and yet, and yet I'm wondering, I'm wondering if there are any of you here who have the particular kind of pride that Isaiah describes here. Namely, the kind of pride that rejects God in unbelief. I'm wondering if there's anyone here in this room who has the kind of pride that has not yielded to King Jesus in repentance and faith because what fools are they? What fools are they? What fools are they who for a drop of pleasure will drink a sea of wrath? But you don't have to drink that wrath. You don't have to do that. It doesn't have to go down that way because you can have eternal salvation paid for in full, free by faith and submission and humble yielding to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Please don't blow that off if you don't know him. But that brings us finally to inevitable outcome number three. Inevitable outcome number three, the splendor of Yahweh will soon be displayed. The splendor of Yahweh will soon be displayed. And trick question for you. What is the saddest thing in the world? Like, what would you say that is? Like, if you had to rank, what is the saddest, most tragic, most heartbreaking thing in the world today, or in all of human history for that matter, what would you say that is? And it's a trick question because there's one answer. You see, biblically and theologically, the saddest thing in the world is this. It's that the infinite God of matchless splendor and imponderable sovereign majesty is exchanged for idols. That's the saddest thing. That's the saddest thing in the world in history forever. That although God exists to be known and loved and worshipped by the people that he created, that billions and billions of people in the world do not know him. And they have exchanged him for manageable deities formed by the thoughts and the pride and the arrogance of the imagination of the sons of men. But imagine, imagine, imagine if you can, if it's even possible to do so, imagine a world without them. A world without idols. Imagine what that will look like in that day when King Jesus returns with the glory of a thousand sons to claim his throne and what people will do to all the idols to which they cling, for which they murdered to obtain. Imagine what that will be like, because guess what? You don't have to imagine what that will be like. Isaiah tells us what that will look like in verses 18 through 21. Look at the text. He says, and idols will completely vanish. And they, that is the unrepentant proud, they will go into the caves of the rocks 
and the holes of the dust from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises up to terrify the earth. In that day, man shall cast their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they have made in order to worship to the moles and to the bats. And they will go into the clefts of the rocks and the caves of the stones from before the the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises up to terrify the earth. You know what that is right there? You're not going to agree with this. That's Christmas. It is. It is. The hope of Christmas is ultimately that the newborn king would make things right in the world. And the wrongest thing in the world that needs to be made right is that all idolatry needs to be obliterated out of existence. Which is exactly what verse 17 says. Look at the text. It says, and idols will vanish completely. When will that happen? Verse 17 The day that Yahweh comes to be exalted, that's when all the discount dollar store deities around which people build their lives will all of a sudden be exposed for the cheap and worthless trinkets that they are. When that happens, verse 19, the idol-worshiping enemies of God in that day, they will go into the caves of the rocks And in the holes of the dust from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises up to terrify the earth. I mean, think about that. It's a repeat from verse 10. And it is vivid. And it is haunting. And it is very real, isn't it? Think about it, picture it in your minds. One day, human beings who seek to sit on the throne of God will in that day scurry for shelter. And the crannies and crevices of the rocks like rats when God, the only God, appears. All the idols with which they sought to deify themselves will be cast aside and their precious metals left to the bats and to the moles, the unclean to the unclean. Look at verse 20. In that day man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which he has made to worship to the moles and to the bats. Think about this. All of a sudden, that which seemed so beautiful before and that which was worth, worth killing over will all of a sudden be useless and empty, which is what the Hebrew word for idol literally means, by the way. And moles and bats and dirty holes. That, that, that's picked by Isaiah because in Leviticus 11, those are both declared unclean, disgusting animals, which is exactly what idolatry is. And then verse 21 repeats verse 19, almost word for word, men will flee, the enemies of God, alive in that day because it is a literal day on the calendar coming in the future. They will hide themselves in caves and holes in the ground from the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty. Do you feel this? This is real. This is not some cheesy thrill ride, CGI-filled film that comes out in the theaters. This is real, and it's just a matter of time. And those people that flee will hope. They will just hope that when God arrives, when the Messiah arrives, that he will forget about them, that he will not see them. And yet that was their fundamental error because the gods that they worshipped which do not see the true God does see all things. And interestingly, the the chapter ends in verse 22 with an application. Do you see that? A, A practical application. Isaiah is very practical. He likes doing biblical counseling. He wants to help us apply what it is that we are learning. And notice the practical application he gives at the end of the chapter, verse 22. He says, stop, literally it says, stop you. Stop you regarding man who has breath in his nostrils. And it says, literally, for why should he be esteemed? Isn't that interesting? That that's the application of a, pro, uh, of a chapter on idolatry and pride? What? And yet it makes sense, doesn't it? 
it makes perfect sense that this would be the application because the issue behind the worship of idols is actually the worship of self. People want to be worshipped by the very people that they worship. And therefore, they will do whatever. They will say whatever. They will live however, and they will buy whatever it takes to make that happen. And so, loaded question of the day, do you see this anywhere in your life? Anywhere at all? Do you want to be worshipped by the very people that you worship? Do you want so much to be liked by your kids, by your coworkers, by your family, by unbelievers in your life to the degree that you are willing to compromise and be silent about the truth? Because what that is, you understand, is pride. Idolatry and pride. And yet, I don't want you to despair, little church. There is a cure. There is actually a double cure for the pride, the arrogance, and idolatry in our lives, and it is this. The cure for pride, the double cure for pride, is the supremacy of God on the one hand and the sovereign grace of God on the other. Here's what I mean. A couple minutes and we're done. Number one, if you want to be humble and you want to grow in humility, and you want to put pride to death in your life, number one, you need to make the glory of who God is the object of your daily, if not hourly, contemplation. Does that make sense? If you want to be humble, you must make the glory of who God is the object of your daily, if not hourly, contemplation. Because, you see, you don't go to the Grand Canyon to feel significant. You don't look through a telescope and look at the wonders of the galaxy to brag about yourself, do you? If you do, you're a very sick person. No, we look at those things to be lost in the wonder and the grandeur and the majesty and the beauty of those things. And in the very same way, you must go to the grand canyon of God's perfections. You must put your eye to the telescope of the holy scriptures and see the magnificent galaxy, the universe of God's glory. Because don't you understand, the more glory you see of who God is, the more you will be freed from the pride that seeks to entangle you. The more you're exhilarated with God, the more humble you will be. Number two, you need to make the sovereign grace of God in Christ the riveting focus of your meditation. You need to make the sovereign grace of God in Christ the focus of your daily meditation. What I mean is you need to come to grips with the great lengths to which God had to go to save you from eternal woe and despair. For instance, you need to get a handle on unconditional election, that God singled you out and selected you in eternity past when nothing existed except God. You need to get a handle on the sin-bearing substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, purchased, paid for, in full, all wrath appeased, all, all injustice cleared, all guilt is gone. You need to get a handle on the mind-blowing miracle of regeneration that God awakened within you. He made you alive and produced within you the very repentance and faith by which you were saved. You must come to grips with that every aspect of your salvation is the result of God's sovereign initiative and choice. One writer said this. He said, if there ever was a system of theology to slay the pride of man, it is the doctrines of sovereign grace. For it rightly focuses our attention on the Bible's clear teaching that even the very faith you exercise is a gift from God himself. That's how we overcome pride in our lives, the supremacy of God and the sovereign grace of God. I close with this. Again, I realize, sorry, not sorry, this was not particularly festive. This was not very Christmassy. 
This was not the usual Christmas season sermon. That'll come next week. That'll come next Sunday. But this was not the typical Christmas season sermon people are accustomed to. But don't forget, don't forget, because what this really is, is Christmas. Because all of the peace on earth and mercy mild that we so desperately want can only happen when God first appears in the splendor of his majesty to terrify the earth. Right? Because what this is, you understand, is the purging of all false worship and pride on the earth that will lead directly to the kingdom. Don't forget that verses 6 through 22 is the necessary work of God on the earth that will lead to and culminate in the glorious kingdom of the Messiah in verses 1 through 5. And when he comes, it will be and he will be everything we have been waiting. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the sobriety that comes to us in reading passages like this. It's sobering to think, oh, Lord, that we were that close. We were that close to being one day those people who would flee to the rocks and hide in the caves. That could have been us. That would have been us had you not intervened. And we are so grateful that you did. We are so grateful that you intervened in our life without our permission, without our consent, that you awakened us by sovereign grace. You rescued us. The chains fell off. Our hearts were free. We rose, went forth, and followed thee. All grace, all mercy, all sovereign initiative. Oh, we rejoice. We can't wait not necessarily for these things, Lord, although we know they must happen, but we cannot wait for what comes after these things, namely the glorious vision of verses one through five. The nations will be saved. Paradise will be regained. The curse of sin will be lifted. And oh, King Jesus, you will reign and rule and be the center of the earth, and we cannot wait for that day. And it's in your glorious sovereign name that we pray. Amen.